Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I've met a lot of people on this show, and I've noticed that over our conversations, we become friends in one way or another. Uh, We all share a journey. We all share the same plight, so it's kind of easy to become friends. But today, I want to bring you a conversation with someone who is a long-term friend. Austin Martin and I have known each other for quite a few years, and as I was thinking about who I wanted to talk to on this podcast, the one thing that came to mind was I need someone who has a love for some of the ancient writers, the ancient theologians, and there are people I've had on the show before who have that, but Austin has studied this kind of stuff. And so from his position now as a pastor in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area, He brings insight from people like John Cassian and the Cappadocian Fathers. And you don't have to know who that is right now. You're going to find out who that is. But the thing that comes out in our conversation today, and that I'm so excited for you to hear, is that though things seem old, they are so relevant and can be so new for our cultural, theological, and spiritual moment. And so I'm so happy to introduce you to and let you hear the conversation with my very good friend, Austin Martin. Austin Martin, my friend, we've been talking about doing this for quite some time, and now we are able to do it. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, So I always start with the same question, and I I like starting here because it helps to set up the discussion really well, which is about defining what wisdom is. And so uh, for you, what I'd love to know is if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you start? Oh, you know, what's, what's funny is I listen to your podcast and I know that that's the first question you ask. And that is one question that I did not think of to, <laughs> to formulate an answer about. So... Gotcha. Good job, Uh Austin. Um, Now, knowing Jesus and knowing God, and and that's messy, and and I think that that's important that it's messy. And so I look at, you know, I listen to your podcast, like I said, and I hear everybody has a kind of a nuanced take on it. And I think that right there is wisdom, that it's not just monolithic. It's not one thing that it is fluid and it responds differently depending on circumstances. And so that's where I would begin is start in the great tradition of the Bible and move around in that and look to your right and to your left and to see what people throughout different cultures, uh, different continents, different centuries have said and uh, do your best to make wise choices from there. Yeah, so what I hear in what you're saying is wisdom has it has a mobility to it. You can take it with you. So the, the things that are wise in one century or one culture or one place or one situation may be wise in another, but they may not. So it has a, a mobility to it, but it also has a, a flexibility to it. It's not rigidly applying the same thing every place, every time in the exact same way. You know, you take the most basic teachings of Jesus, like loving your neighbor. Well, that all depends on who your neighbor is and what what's going on with the idea of neighboring, where you are and who you are. And 
I like that because I think it, it, it represents more how Jesus interacted with real human life. And for you, uh, for you, it also represents the intersection of what you do. So the messiness of leading a church, but also the messiness of being a person who's in love with historical theology, that is not only the ideas, but the people and the cultures and the time periods that produce those ideas. We'll talk about church here in a second. Let's talk for a second about historical theology. How did, what was it that made you want to investigate all these old dead people? <laughs> the, uh, honestly, ignorance. Uh, the, the tradition. <laughs> the best starting place for everything. <laughs> yeah, I just had no clue. A tradition I came up in, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an American mutt when it comes to religious tradition, man. Uh, my mom grew up Amish, and so that one side of the family is Amish. One of my aunts is Mennonite, and, uh, and so I kind of come from, I have this Anabaptist side, which I don't, didn't know much about other than, you know, my family was that. And then uh, the other side is this kind of small town, Indiana conservative, uh, men sit on the left, women sit on the right, and uh, just an odd kind of take on what church is. At the time, you know, you grow up in it and you just think it is what it is. But then as I, you know, came to Christ, I ended up going to college and learned a lot of great stuff about the Bible, but everything that I seemed to be picking up was... You know what's what's the Bible here in at this point in time in the early 2000s, and then uh, the early church. So there's the early church, and then there is us, and whatever happened in between that is of you know various levels of importance. And so as I kind of am growing in my faith, and you know I'm reading stuff, you get out of the college bubble and you start investigating your little pet projects or trying to answer questions that you have, you discover, oh, there's a lot that happened in between. And no, no one book even helped me have a solid grasp on it as I was kind of going through it. So I thought, you know, I would like to spend some time actually even studying this in depth with a guide there, a guide being my professors. And and that's exactly what I found. I found a, a wonderful... Uh, grad program that helped me really understand the history of Christian thought. And uh, even beyond that, I fell in love with it just as much as I fell in love with, you know, the Bible before that, that that there's a richness and a depth and a truth in that that goes well beyond, you know, there's us and there's the early church. Because, of course, we would not be here if it were not for the past 2,000 years of the church growing and struggling and making mistakes and hopefully learning from them and so on. So that's that's what kind of led me through that process, and I'm really grateful for it. What well, does seem, because I know the traditions that you and I have sort of sprung from, it does seem like there's a, you read the Bible up until about somewhere in Acts, and then you push pause, and then you pick up yesterday. As if, you know, everything that happened in between is nice if you're interested in that kind of thing. Yep. It's sort of like, you know, knowing, and now this is, but this is ironic and stupid, even saying this, not stupid, but ignorant saying this out loud. It's like world history. Like there's some people who are really into world history, 
but it's often seen as like a side project, like building model boats or something like that. But there's a whole lot about our faith that developed in between, you know, Acts chapter two, verse 38 and now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so as you started diving into it, obviously when you, when you walk into a tradition and then you come out and begin to have some, some reflection on it, you start to notice some of the gaps. Like as you became more and more familiar with the, between what happened between the scriptures and now, you probably started to see some of the, the challenges, the gaps, the, what, what do you think it is that causes us to, to often ignore what happened between scripture and now, as far as our own practice and our own faith? Yeah, there, there's a, it's a lazy critique, but I think that there's some truth to it that this phrase chronological snobbery that, you know, here we are in 2020 and we are so intellectually, technologically refined. We just know things way better than anybody else knows things. And mm-hmm. and in some sense, that's there's truth to that, no doubt. Vaccines and you know, I have an iPhone and we're chatting across the nation right now. Like there's obviously truth to that, but uh, the temptation then is to assume that anybody who came before you is in some way inferior. And the longer, the further back you get into these ancients, uh, the, the more foolish they can be. But man, you pick up any of these books, you, you're going to be blown away because not only are these intelligent people, they're far smarter than most people that I know. And, and it's, it's difficult to understand them, not because they're intentionally vague, but because they're, they're very sharp intellects and, and uh, they have something to say. And I think it's in C.S. Lewis's uh, introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, which I believe I have probably right behind me on my bookshelf somewhere. Um, he, he writes about how you should always be reading something from another author from a totally different era. And, and I think that is so true because they're not, de- they're not asking the same questions you're asking. And they're in, so the answers are going to be, they're going to seem odd compared to today. But what you're going to find there is a richness and a depth of things that you just have that we frankly haven't thought of before. They're dealing with things that we might not be dealing with anymore. And it's not because we're better. It's just because they're different. And when we can take the wisdom of what they were dealing with and introduce it into what we're struggling with today, then we can find that there are some common threads all throughout it. And it's a it's an incredibly beautiful thing when you when you get there. But uh, it, it, it takes some work and it takes some effort, but man, you get to digging around in this stuff and, you know, like many people have discovered, you can spend your entire life just uh, discovering one period of history and, and that's uh, a fascinating endeavor. It, it also brings to mind, even that illustration you just gave of C.S. Lewis writing an introduction to an Athanasius work. Yeah. So you've got the 20th century writer and... British writer, mm-hmm. so he has a very different take on Christianity than in, uh, an American 20th century, later 20th century Christian. 
writing on the fourth, third and fourth century um, influential father Athanasius, who was commenting, not, who was obviously taking his positions and his writing from not only the earliest church, but also from the scriptures. So it's like there's a, it's it's like the game with the Russian dolls. Mm-hmm. As you keep taking them apart, they goes deeper and deeper. And so I think for me, what has happened is there's a humility that comes as you, it's work. You start digging into it. You have to dig through the sources, but there's also humility when suddenly you realize this thing that I believe, I don't believe it because it just says it in the Bible. So many of us are reading Jesus, but we're not reading Jesus. We're reading Jesus through the lens of Augustine, who read him through the lens of Paul. So there's always this like double back. So there's almost this humility of saying, gosh, and we were talking about this before we started recording. I've today, these days, especially in this pandemic thing, I've been trying to figure out how to keep my head on straight. And a lot of the way I've been doing that is by going back uh, to some of the people you're talking about. So the desert fathers and mothers in the fourth century, but also I've, because I'm got some Irish blood in me, I've, I've loved the Celtic tradition. And one of the things I discovered is there's this great, um, I've been given this education that there was a guy named Pelagius who was just this horrible anti-Christian figure in history. And then I started reading the Celts and they start quoting Pelagius as if it was a good thing. And I'm like, wait, hang on. So there's a whole section of Christian Christians, Christian history where this dude's fine. Don't you guys know? And so there's a humbling that takes place there. It was like, oh, it is kind of messy. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you navigate that? Because you you as you actively engage with uh, some of these historical figures, there is there is a wow, that's insightful. And there's also a oh. Well, that introduces some challenges. Like, how do you how do you balance those tensions as you do this study? The the uh, whatever you do, you, no no one is perfect, and no no uh, incredible theologian. Whether you're going to go to uh, the Cappadocian Fathers, it's three dudes from Turkey, basically, who are just kind of the industry standard for ancient wisdom uh, and yeah, theology. Yeah, give, na- give their names real uh, quick. G- Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea. And, uh, we just don't have cool names. In I know. That's part of the problem. Casey of Orland Park. Casey, yes. Casey of Tinley. Um, yes. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty great. Uh, yeah. Austin of Scottsdale, which actually my middle name is Scott. So that could be, that could actually fit really well. You're there, but, but no. The, the you have you have a. Uh, it, it's easy to lionize people from the past as if they are uh, as inerrant as what some believe the Bible to be, and and both of those are mistakes. You know, inerrancy is a, a mistake. It's a category error, and uh, and and it, that's true historically as well. So you look at stuff like um, Pelagius, even. He, I haven't read a ton of his work, but I do know that, that the attacks against him were generally propaganda. It was, and, and it's not that there was no truth to it. It's just that there's enough truth to make people afraid that what he's saying is telling you that somehow you can make your way to God. And 
And then you have Augustine, who's kind of the opposite side of it. Uh, you know, wars are, uh, what, what's the phrase, told, uh, the victors write the history or something like that. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and, and Augustine is the victor in that sense. And so the Western tradition is, generally speaking, an Augustinian tradition. tradition. And when you understand that the Western tradition kind of fits that mold, but that's not the only tradition. <laughs> there is the Eastern tradition. And then there are even sub-traditions out of that. You have a, um, you know, an, an Egyptian tradition with the Coptic church. And you have mm. a Syrian tradition that is distinct from maybe the Greek East. And, and even in, uh, further out East, into further deeper into Asia, you have a tradition. And, and all of those are great. And important to, to take, spend some time in. Uh, but what you find is then our Western tradition is not, again, monolithic. It is not standing alone. It is not perfect. There is something much bigger than that. And so you have somebody like Palladius who gets a lot of grenades just lobbed his direction. And of course, he's not around to defend himself. And people, you know, with that Augustinian certainty, they stand around and and try to say that you know, man has no role to play in the spiritual life. You know, you get some high, you know, what we call Calvinistic, which is actually Augustinian uh, view of that that God is kind of controlling every every leaf the same way we might control a piece on a chessboard. And and I just I don't find that helpful personally. And 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 when you look through history, there's you know, the guy that I kind of spent my time in grad school studying, John Cashin, um, had a lot to say about that too, because he got accused of being Pelagian. And, you know, that, it's not a, it's an interesting discussion, I think, but. Yeah. Well, I think it's, that's a good, it's a good turn. And so if anybody's listening to this and you're like, what did I just hear? I feel like I just drank from the historical fire hose. Um, all you can, there are great resources out there, and I'll throw some into the show notes where you can read up on who Pelagius was, who Augustine was, and what the controversy was there. But Austin, you mentioned John Cassian, and I think this is a good a good spot to step into this because, along with historical theology, there is also in you and in me, and this is the heart one of the hearts of this podcast is the idea of spiritual formation and the Pelagian accusation, the idea that you can work your way to God has always been alive when it comes to discussions around spiritual formation Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's, you are active spiritual formation with practices and things like that. There is this active thing like, Oh, am I trying to earn my salvation? I love Dallas Willard's take on this. He said, you know, I grew up Baptist and so we'd preach for an hour telling people there's nothing they could do to be saved. And then we'd sing hymns for an hour until they did something so that they could be saved. <laughs> and I love that. Like his whole thing about this, you know, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Yeah, and that's great. I think that's a key distinction. But like for you, Cassian became this thing that this person that you wanted to dive deeper into. What was it about him that drew you in out of the whole like massive territory of ancient uh, writers and thinkers. And well, the, what you said there about formation is really it. That's always been um, kind of the motivating factor for me is 
is I always, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus, and I'm doing my best. And as you grow and as your kind of horizons expand, you just have more questions or thoughts or even critiques of what we grew up with. And, and so in that sense, it, I just kept reading and going deeper and talking to people. And, you know, like I said earlier about um, even going and getting an education in this stuff. Uh, the thing that, that interested me was that here you have a guy who Cashin himself, he's not the spiritual writer per se. He does all these interviews in his book. He, he has uh, three books, but two big ones, uh, one called The Institutes and the other one called The Conferences. And conferences, are ba it's basically interviews. It's podcasts, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> it's seriously, it, it's him and his buddy sitting down with uh, a father, an Abba, uh, at a monastery that they are submitting themselves to and just they ask questions and then the the spiritual guru or the the father just starts giving them an answer and it's fascinating when you when you're reading it that man there's a depth here and and I mean conference 12 holy cats we're talking there's some gritty stuff in there that is not for the faint of heart um, and so th there's just lots of things going on there that, of course, it kind of piques your interest at, interest at, wow, here's a really thick book that's thicker than, like, most of what Dallas Willard wrote. It's about that big. Uh, and so there's so much wisdom here. And then you find out that the Benedictine Order adopted Cashin's principles. He is, Cashin's work, his interviews, are effectively the foundation of Western monasticism. And the, yeah. the Benedictine order has been around for 1,500 years, which tells you something about longevity, that we're not talking yeah. about the latest devotional book that came out, 40 days of this or that, and I'm not knocking all that. I'm just saying, if there is a, if there is a, spiritual, a set of spiritual practices that isn't a flash in the pan, it's something that's been around for 1,500 years. And if this guy wrote the thing that is kind of the bedrock of laying down, you know, what, what everything else has kind of been built upon, I thought, well, shoot, that's a good spot to begin. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of where I've hung out and spent my time. And uh, uh, it's, it's rich. It's something that, you know, in a similar way as scripture, I've yet to fully understand it. But man, it's, it's been a lot of fun and very helpful for me personally. And, and there's lots of great resources out there, uh, even helping you kind of connect into it. The power to the power I'm hearing in you, like even as you said, podcasts, like we are given this opportunity with ancient stuff to realize that number one, nothing has really changed. I mean, circumstances have changed, but we, there's things. Life is, you know, Solomon's right. There's nothing new under the sun, mm -hmm. or whoever wrote um, Ecclesiastes. But there's also the sense that we get to tap into something ancient something you know we get to be a part of something that's so much bigger than just this cultural moment that we live in and even um <laughs> I, I love when you were talking about pelagius and augustine and, and the propaganda stuff like i couldn't help but hear american politics <laughs> like you've been taught to fear this thing so that you choose the opposite of it yep you know what? What happens if you believe you can work your way to your work your way to salvation, and you're wrong? You don't want to be wrong, do you? Why don't you just leave it all up to God? He's sovereign. Uh -huh. Well, so even even, I, the, even that know, word sovereign, um, you know the 
it, it, it does not mean what you probably think it means. You, when, at least that's what I think every time I hear someone say, oh, don't worry, God's sovereign. Well, I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably more complex than what you're, because you know, what we often use that word for is just kind of as this blanket statement of uh, saying, well, you know, I don't have anything to say about the matter because God's the one that's, that's doing it all in the first place. So I guess I'll sit back and sip my margarita. And it's like, well, and, and, and that's, that's honestly, that's kind of a more Augustinian, when we're talking about this, what we call grace theology, uh, that's more on the Augustinian side, if you're going to have that. I'm not going to say that's strictly Augustine, because, you know, uh, I'll let the, the scholars debate that. But then they lob out on the opposite end, well, then do you think that, you know, you can work your way to God? And that's, and that's Cashin right there, where he gets, he gets accused of being a uh, semi-Pelagian, which at the time is like saying he's a semi-murderer. Or he's a semi, I mean, throw anything. Come on, just, you're, you're already telling him that he's dirty if you, by framing it in that way. So, of course, it's an unfair framing of it. But what he would say about this is that, that there is nothing that God is not at work in, whether it's you or me in this podcast right now, or whether it's, you know, when we hang up and go back to whatever we're going to work on the rest of the day today. Uh, that there's nothing that God is not involved in. There's nothing that God does not care about and nothing that God does not want to use to help form you. And uh, I think of Tish Harrison Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, that is just a perfect rendering of this for, for our society today of uh, making breakfast or, or making the bed or having a fight with your spouse. And, and, and what Cashin would say in this whole grace theology thing is that all of that is an opportunity to learn more about God and to grow into his likeness, to grow into his love. Mm. And so there's nothing that God's not using to, to bring about that. And, and that is this, what they would call kind of a synergistic view of God. It's not an either or, it's not a zero sum game of, oh, God's at work over there, but not here. You know, cause I think about this all the time as a pastor, I'm writing sermons. Uh, I almost never, not never. It's, it's more rare than not, I should say, that when I'm working on a sermon that I feel like God is speaking through me. I just know that I'm sitting here and I'm doing my best to communicate God's love through whatever framework we're doing that week. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Now, does God use it? Absolutely. Where, where does God use it? Which, which sentences did God help me write? Well, come on. It's, it's not God did this and I did that, it's that all of life is a mess of God at work and me just trying to do my best to follow Him. And that's, that's when we adopt that, you stop feeling, for me at least, you stop feeling guilty about, well, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. How oh, you know what? God's at work. Uh, I, yeah. I, I can trust in something that is forming me that is beyond my conscious efforts to you know, conjure up God's actions. So Cassian, 
what time period are we talking about here, John Cassian? Uh, late, late 300s, early 400s. So he's actually a contemporary of Augustine. It's quite possible, maybe even likely, that they even had a bit of correspondence. It's uh, not out of the question for sure. Uh, we don't have there. There is no record of that, but um, you know, there's some thoughts that maybe there were some shots fired over the Mediterranean Sea because uh, he was in Cashin was writing his books in uh, the set what, what would be the south of France now, and Augustine is uh, in North Africa. So you know, there's there's a bit of separation there, but there's enough boats and trade routes and stuff that they could have corresponded. Uh, we just don't have anything if they did. So we're talking about a time period in which um, Christianity is becoming the religion of the empire oh, yeah. under Constantine. So if people don't know the history, I think this is important. Christianity is becoming the religion of the empire. Up until that point, the, one of the highest forms of obedience and discipleship was martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as this century unfolds, there's a group of people who once martyrdom is off the table because Christianity is the state's religion um, and there's all kinds of stuff we don't have that would take another podcast to get into <laughs> Constantine and everything oh, yeah. everybody's got their opinion oh, yeah. but what happened is there's a group of people who said we can't live in this anymore and so they fled to the deserts mm-hmm. um, they're often called the, the Abbas and Amas or the desert fathers and mothers and some of them did some very strange and irrational things uh, but a lot of them are these very centered people. They fled to the wilderness under this call to flee, pray, and be silent. Yeah. And they discovered this well of, uh, of wisdom and faith. And so Cassian is sort of in the, he's in the flow of that. He's in the currents of that change that's happening. So, so what comes out of institutes and conferences? What, like, what is, what is he, where is his landing spot as in these conversations? What, what do you find that rises up out of these two books that has, that has really impacted you? Well, the, the kind of piggyback on that, too. So, like, exactly what you said is kind of the big sociological development, right, of we're no longer being persecuted, but we still want to have kind of some marker with our faith as we're growing. And so uh, that's, you see this kind of fleeing to the desert, phenomenon. And really, there's just a handful of decades where you find a ton of fruit coming out of the desert. And we're talking Egypt is where Cashin spent most of his time, but but then there's also uh, places in Palestine and Syria and throughout the region, really. But the uh, what you find is really just a select few decades, because then in the early 400s, there's a huge controversy, theological thing, and of course, now theological controversies are political controversies because, you know, just a few decades prior, Christianity became the official religion of the empire, which is always dangerous. But uh, they, so these heretics or this controversy arises that leads to basically the desert being blown up. All these uh, monks have to disperse, and though the that period of just a few decades of incredible fruit came to an end, and so Cassian then goes around. He you know goes up to Constantinople. He goes over to Rome and ends up in southern France, where they said you know they're legendary. The Desert Fathers are legendary at the time that they're around, and even when Cassian left, 
and you know, people find out, hey, you spent time with those guys, right? And he says, yeah, sure, I spent time with those guys. Would you tell us how to set up our monasteries to run them the same way that you guys ran yours down in Egypt? And he says, sure. So that's where Institutes comes from. Institutes huh. is him just writing, saying, well, here's how you do it. Here, and I mean everything from the belt that you wear, why you wear the belt that way, uh, what, you, what it looks like to renounce uh, all of your family, all of your possessions, of course, everything. You're giving it all up. And so he goes through and he gives, and he, he talks about the eight principal vices, which the church turned into eventually the seven deadly sins. And um, the... They decided eight, decided eight was too many. Yeah. And I, you know what? I, I actually, I, I only know the eight. I don't even know the seven deadly sins, so I don't know which one they leave out. <laughs> Hopefully it's gluttony because I love some food. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good stuff. But of course, gluttony is not just food, whatever. That would, again, that'd be a different podcast, but... Um, so Institutes is relatively short. I don't know how many pages, maybe 200 or less of a book. So it's pretty easy to read and get through, but there's some really good fruit in there. So he writes Institutes and then they said, hey, could you write more? And so he says, sure, let me write the conferences, my series of podcasts, I guess. Uh, so he writes these interviews and he wrote the first 10 of them. They said, yeah, give us more. And then he wrote the next set of them. And then he wrote the third set of, of conferences. So there's 24 total conferences. And, uh, you know, what, what comes out of it is really this concept. It's, it's kind of this Eastern spirituality, which is Greek, which is um, very large in its scope, uh, laid out over the course of this like 900 and something page book. Um, and what you get is you get this concept that the divine life, that the life God wants for us is not to read your Bible, to invite your friends to church, and to pray, the, the, which is kind of like the three things that I think churches tend to leave you with. That, yeah, you're successful if you do that, uh, if you can bring your friends to church. You know, let us grow and let us, and with, with no real vision of what formation looks like in the process. And so uh, what, what he gives us is he says that, that it's about this concept of purity of heart. Yeah, which is an which is a concept that goes to Antony before him, who's kind of the the OG of Desert Fathers. He's the original uh, monk, the guy who really kind of started the movement. And and, and he's it really purity of heart is love. It is growing in love of God, love of others, and and they monks would practice that through hospitality. They could be on day thirty nine of a forty day fast, and somebody shows up at their little hole, and they uh, break their fast. And they just, because they want to be hospitable, and they don't tell the person they're breaking their fast. They don't make a hoopla. They don't want to be known by that. They, and, and, and so they, there's an extreme hospitality that they have that is a beautiful thing that, uh, that honestly, I wish I was better at. But man, they, uh, it, it's a very rich picture of what the spiritual life is like. It's no longer just checking off a few boxes. Rather, it's inviting God into every moment of prayer and of, you know, of your, what we might consider normal life. And, and that, that is a rich, rich spirituality that leads to, you know, what I think is uh, what Jesus in intended for us from the beginning. So the gift of the, the old dead folks <laughs> um, is that we, we try to learn 
we try to learn their wisdom. And wisdom means that there are some things that we will take with us that are portable and there are some things that we won't because they're time-bound and cultural. Um, wisdom isn't just knowledge, it's knowledge applied, right? It's, it's being able to take what we learn. There's also a sense of standing in the stream of a, of a bigger tradition. And, and obviously, if it, there are some people who are hearing this who may not have heard anything we just talked about because they're still sitting with the idea that the life with God is not just an exchange. You know, Augustinian theology sometimes comes down to you can't do anything to earn your salvation. God gave Jesus for you so that you could step out of that. And I'm over, way oversimplifying mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. but that it's more of an exchange that happens maybe once. And then, you know, discipleship is, or formation is the icing. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's good. You know, you should be a disciple. That's a good thing for you to do. Instead of saying, this is actually the life that you were made for and meant for. Whereas Cassian is saying, gosh, no, that's the thing. Yep. Like the marketing shouldn't be go to heaven when you die. The marketing should be union with God while you're here and now. Yeah. So So how do we bring that now? Uh, any wisdom has to, you know, we're trying to think about what to do with it. How do we, how do you bring that into, and since this is in front of us, let's just do this. How do we bring that into a context where we're dealing with a global pandemic and faith and churches are struggling with what it means to, be who they are if we can't be together and we can't do things the same way we have or if we as you know americans we can't go out the same places we've been to now you guys in arizona have a whole different thing than we here in illinois yep. we're we're never leaving ever ever <laughs> uh which might be fine you know i'm i'm fine to play this safe yeah. but so how do we bring the wisdom of someone like john cassian who's talking about god and everything and forming ourselves around that into this present moment, what what are some connection points that you see? Well, I think of weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, um, is a is a big thing that I'm kind of working through. I think even specifically this week, um, you know, I've I was on the phone for a while earlier this week with somebody in our church that's really struggling, and um, you know, family is out of town or out of state even. Um, single, at home, and uh, in isolation, very stressful at work, um, and uh, just feeling like there's no hope. And uh, of course, that person needs help, and more help than what even I can provide. And and so, you know, we mourn together the the state of what is happening. In, in the world right now, and even how that Im- is impacting their situation. Uh, and then there's another uh, a family in our church that is in the process of saying goodbye to uh, their mother, their grandmother. And it's heartbreaking when you see the realities of what's happening around you, but there's hope. And, and I don't say that, you know, lightly, because the pains are real, and I don't expect for you know people that are in the in the throes of struggling with what's happening in the world to just say, "Oh, there's hope, everything's okay then," but rather to trust in that, and that to trust in that is something that is bigger than saying, "Okay, now I'm trusting, now I'm trusting." But rather, it's this real relationship of going to God every moment and saying, "God, I really am struggling to trust right now." 
um, and, and to invite God into that and to know that God isn't disappointed with you in that, that you are not a failure for struggling in that, but rather that God can be in that and you can invite him into that situation too. And so, you know, in our church, we haven't reopened yet. I know a lot of other churches in the area have or are very near it, and we're, we're not too far from it, but, um, you know, we, we have 30% of our congregation wants to open now, and 30% wants, is not going to come if we, re, if we did reopen now, and then there's a, a kind of messy 40% in the middle. And, and, you know, we hear the loud voices on both sides of it, and all that we're trying to do is to say, hey, you know, God is in this. We know God's at work. All we're going to do is ask you to trust in God through this and be willing to wait, no matter what, be willing to wait and to find wisdom in patience and prudence and waiting uh, because, uh, after all, we don't live for ourselves. We live for God. We live for others. And in my hope and my prayer is that our people can come alongside and see that. And that's my job. I'm I'm supposed to bring people along. That's I'm the pastor. I'm the shepherd here. So, so it's a it's a big challenge. But but the way that I find some of the wisdom in kind of what we've talked about earlier is that it's not just one thing. It's not just saying um, trust in God and therefore okay now I'm trusting in God. No, trust is a process. It is a journey in and of itself amongst many other journeys that we go on. And for some people, that's going to be really easy to do. And for the rest of us, it's really difficult. And, and God's okay with both of those. And God isn't threatened by both of those. I think it's something my wife has been repeating regularly, that the uh, kingdom of God is not in trouble and neither are you. And, and I love that. I love that because, uh, because it's true. And that regardless of what happens to organizations of people right now, even if churches were closing their doors, uh, the kingdom of God is not in trouble. God is still at work. And if, if our church had to close its doors, then, then so be it. You know, we're not looking at that. Uh, that's not really an option uh, for us. But if it was, then that's okay because we can trust that God is still at work in this. And, and that's the hope that I have. And, and that's, you know, my strength isn't, coming from myself. It comes from the Bible. It comes from what people over the last 2,000 years have had to endure, which is much worse than anything that I'm dealing with right now. And, and I see, okay, if they can trust God through this, if they can get through this, then so can I. And, and, and I'm going to trust that God is uh, still speaking and still moving in some way. They did seem to have, they being, especially those third, fourth century folks, they do seem to have a much wider berth in their theology for suffering. Oh, yes. Like they don't see it as the opposite. They see it as part of it. And I think that's what ha what allowed them to deal with, like you said. I mean, the, the things that they were dealing with were far deeper um, there's still a level of comfort we have that's leagues beyond what they had. But. Yeah, we, we, that, that's getting back at the C.S. Lewis thing. We will, we will never, at least as far as I'm aware, we're never going to understand what it was like to live in the fourth century where Christianity was, was now becoming this, uh, it was this emerging religion that was gaining uh, imperial levels of support. Uh, and then the spiritual 
forces at play even in that. Um, I mean, they're, they're profound. And for us here in America, it's just, it could not be more different. Um, I mean, there, there are similarities and you can find certainly points, but, um, but man, the, what we're facing today is, it's unique in and of itself. And, and so I think you can go back to these people that, and, and find the ones that invented the whole concept of a hospital. I mean, that happened in the fourth century and it's one of the Cappadocian fathers who, who uh, came up with this concept. And wow, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And he didn't do that because he was just feeling generous. He did that because of his conviction that, that God is a healer. And so for, for me, I, I look at these things and I'm encouraged because I just know that it's not up to me. <laughs> it's up to us and that God, God's led through what I think are probably a lot more difficult and complex times than what we even face today. And so uh, I can trust him to, to continue to show us the way. I think there's such a big, beautiful invitation to you from the, from the ancient writers and thinkers and, and Christians to participate with them uh, in our way, in our place, in our time. Is, is there a practice or an idea or something that's come from your study, say of Cassian, that you have incorporated into your life or maybe even to what you do with your church in Chaparral? The, I'd say the biggest single thing, and it's not unique to Cashin, um, it's, it's more typified by kind of what would be kind of an Eastern approach or what would be an Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christian approach. Um, it's just the, what I think I mentioned earlier that, that God's at work in all things, that this idea of prayer is really, it's what's still transforming me and that'll probably be the case hopefully for forever, but this, this, we read this phrase, pray continually. And when we read it in this kind of mechanized approach, we think, okay, then I, I, that's impossible because I have to work. And if I have to focus on this Excel doc that's in front of me, then I can't be in prayer. So we see it again as an either or, as a zero sum game, uh, which is a typical Western approach. But when you, when you kind of adopt this Eastern mentality, uh, this supremely Orthodox Christian mentality that God's in all things, then pray continuously means that yes, even in that Excel doc, you are valuing the things that God values and you're willing to invite God into and God's truth into what you're looking at. And so if that's a budget, then uh, with, if it's for your business, for your, for your home or for uh, somebody you work for or anything else, that God's at work in that. And he has something to say about that. And it might be that you're allocating funds in an unjust way. I don't know. It might, it might be that, that you can do uh, more, that he's given you more to do more with the finances. Um, and that's just one simple little example. But praying continually means that there is nothing that's happening that God does not care about, that nothing that's happening that God is not breathing out um, and that God's breath is not animating uh, right now. And, uh, you know, that to me is really what, uh, what encourages me because right now in this time, our church is just, it's going through a lot like every church is and our, our circumstances are unique like every churches are. Uh, and it's easy to look at what we're doing right now and to think, well, we're just at work. We'll see if God's at work later. I, I believe that God's at work even when we're just replacing carpet. I believe that God's at work when we're painting. 
and that the, the way that we treat people that are coming onto our campus that might be doing some of this work for us is directly tied into um, you know, what God would have me do today and directly tied into my prayer life. So God's at work in all things and there's nothing that's out of bounds. You know, as, again, as Tish Harrison Warren points out, the Jewish prayer of, for when you're going to the bathroom, that yes, that too has a role to play in the kingdom of God because without it, you would have no role to play because you would die. Uh, yeah. and, and that's, I, I just, I find that profound and, and encouraging, not just because of my inner junior hire, junior hire that giggles, <laughs> as you are, but yeah, no, I blame you. <laughs> but because it's because it's true, because it's who God is, and and He created our bodies to be this way. So be it, and so praise God for that, and praise God for all things, and let me find what God wants of me in these crazy, messy situations and circumstances, and uh, move along. Yeah. So, as we close, if if somebody were interested in beginning a journey of exploring some of these, let's just say the third, some of the people we've been talking about, whether it's the Cappadocians or Cassian or uh, any of those folks, if somebody were starting there, and let's say that they were really just trying to find a a crop duster dive in kind of way of looking at this, uh, where would you where would you send them? What what resource would you recommend to them? Man, uh, uh, an easy kind of, if you're looking for a crop duster, then I'd say the Philokalia is uh, a great first resource. I'm actually going to go over and grab my copy. I have volume one right here. It's, it's a collection of um, writings where they take people. I think Cashin's even in, in it. Uh, St. Anthony's in it. So, again, he's the first kind of Mac Daddy of uh, spiritual fathers, of Agrius, who's a contemporary of Cashin. Yep, Cashin's right there. Um, it's, it's a great kind of primer. Now, they're, they're all primary resources. And so as you read some of this stuff, it's like anything that you're going to read from a different era. It's going to use words that are kind of difficult. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the most annoying things about being in, interested in historical theology, especially some of these classical Christian folk, is that uh, the translators, much of it wasn't translated into English until the last 100, 150 years or so. So it's relatively new to the West in many ways, unless you already knew Latin or Greek. So good luck if you're fluent in those, then there you go. But uh, for the rest of us who aren't, uh, we needed an English translation. And so some of it was translated in a flowery Victorian language because they, mm. honestly, they just perceived that as being more spiritual, whatever the world that even means. Um, I reject that premise. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, the, there's a flower, the, the more flowery language you use, the more spiritual you are. That's a, that's a bunch of baloney. Um, so the Philokali is really good uh, as kind of flying, flying over it. The you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, if, if you study the Bible, if you're interested in commentaries, there is a fantastic resource. It is, it's actually the first resource I use anytime I'm teaching out of a text, which is most, which is all the time actually. But I'm always looking at, first, what have Christians said about this for centuries? 
Um, you know, what, what has stood the test of time? Not what, what's the most contemporary person say, but, but what's, what's been said and been held true for millennia at this point? Because it's entirely possible people have said something today, and we've even seen this manifested out. Reliable voices, it turns out, end up not being terribly re- reliable um, because it hasn't stood the test of time, because it hasn't stood up to some examinations that, that these other sources have. And so you want to know what what the best way of viewing a text even would be. I'd say the ancient Christian commentary, uh, ACCS, I believe it's called. I have it mm-hmm. online. Fantastic resource if you're looking at Scripture and you want some ancient uh, sources to hop in on that too. Yeah. That's good stuff, man. Thank you. Yeah. Friends, that is what happens when you get two people who we haven't talked in a while uh, because of this whole pandemic thing. This is what happens when you get people together who haven't talked in a while to talk about something that they both love. I hope this has been an enjoyable conversation for you. And, And I wonder if you didn't hear a challenge in Austin today to explore some of these who a friend of mine, J.K. Jones, calls the old dead guys or the old dead folks, because there are male and female voices from ancient times that have so much to tell us. And there, I'm going to include some links to some of the books that we talked about if you want to get a jump on reading something like the Philokalia or uh, John Cassian or any anybody, Athanasius. Uh, there are some links that you can find. And this isn't just for academics. There's some really, really good stuff to bring into our our present cultural moment that you can find in some of these writers. Austin Martin is the lead pastor at Chaparral Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. He holds a bachelor's in biblical literature from Ozark Christian College and an MA in church history and historical theology from Lincoln Christian Seminary. He's married to Rachel and he has three kids. He has no pets and as he likes to say, an old off-brand. Toyota. You can find out more about Austin. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. If you're if you're listening to this on iTunes, thank you. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify or streaming on my website, for all of those things, thank you so much. If you would, whatever platform you're listening, uh, number one, share this conversation with someone you think might enjoy it. Uh, you can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at OtherwisePod. Uh, you can share a link from there. If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, please do that because that helps me understand how things are going and what you'd like to hear. If you have a guest you'd like to suggest, go ahead and send that to me as well. And so, my friends, just know there are ancient voices who speak deeply and sweetly and powerfully to our modern moment. And so may we gain wisdom from those who have gone before us to find the deeper paths, the deeper ways through these cultural moments in which we find ourselves. So until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace.